And we thank you for these verses, world-changing verses in many ways. And so we pray that you'd be with us this morning as we consider them. We pray that we wouldn't simply be after a better understanding, but actually as we open them up, you would form us increasingly into the likeness of Jesus. You'd be shaping us. And so soften our hearts, unstop our deaf ears, open our blind eyes, that we might see you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. So they have given up everything for Jesus. They have left it all behind. They've left behind their livelihoods, their families, their reputations, their lives even. And he has just dropped the bombshell that he is going to go somewhere now and they cannot follow. The disciples cannot go with him. He said, end of the last chapter, chapter 13, verse 33, which is at the top of the page there, if you've got one of the church Bibles, 1082. My, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come, says Jesus. And in this passage... And actually in this, this section of John's Gospel, as the summer unfolds, we will see he tries to encourage them. In all their doubts and their confusions and their whatabouts, Jesus says, trust me. How are they going to cope with the uncertainty? How are they going to go on without Jesus? He says, trust me. And it's right to say the context in John is quite specific but I think what we'll see both today and as we work through this section is that there are timeless realities. There's a them and there in their situation, but then there's a, an us and ours in ours. No doubt it was a whole lot bigger for them, a whole lot scarier. The mountain was huge. It was growing before their eyes. It was looming over them. They were fearful. And yet who in this room can't be plagued by doubts and confusions and whatabouts? The looming mountain is there for us too, isn't it, at times? For us as a church, we've just spoken to Jenny, there are people leaving Oxford this summer. That's part of our calling. It is to love and train and send. But what if, what if they're not replaced in one sense and there are kind of holes all over the church? How do we do church life? How do we do community? What if we struggle to keep building momentum and the building just gets on top of us? We don't realise the vision. We don't get the funds. We... What if there's another variant or another outbreak? What if, what if, what if, what if? Or even us as individuals in our own lives. The stuff that you're carrying with you, the, the cost of living crisis, the what if I can't pay the mortgage? And when those thoughts happen and they plague us and they loom, when we are essentially living in the future with so many uncertainties, we need to learn contentment. We need to, to live today and to trust God for tomorrow. To change the what-ifs to the even-if. Even if I lose my job. Even if I get whatever variant it is. Even if I can't pay the bills. I will trust him. He is in charge. He does know best. He has got me. He's not forgotten me. He is working out his plans and purposes. And in one sense, that sounds all right on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? But what about when you're lying and you can't uh, sleep at night? 
too hot, brain starts wandering, life starts stressing, and suddenly it's three o'clock. What do we do? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, come with me back to chapter 14, 1 to 4. Contrast the way that we can fret and panic against Jesus and his peace, first of all. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. A couple of weeks' time, verse 27, peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Either end, either end of chapter 14, we've got don't let your hearts be troubled. Here are words for disciples. Disciples then, disciples now. Don't be troubled. How? Well, the big idea through the whole section is that it it is better for him to go. It is better that Jesus go than stay. It might seem scary for them, but his going, that is his death, is a good thing, he says. It is a better thing. And we say, why? I mean, surely it would be better off to have him around, wouldn't it? Wouldn't life seem easier now if he was here with you now? Well, he says it is better for him to go because this week, at least, his going is the means by which they are able to dwell with the Father forever. So let me read again verse 1 to 4. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you I was going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. The mountains are looming. It's three o'clock and you can't sleep. And Jesus says, well, the final destination outweighs everything. That's not a escapism. That's not a head in sand and pretend it's fine. It's the, the reality of what is to come which overshadows are mountains of the now. Because of the cross, because of the resurrection, you can have confidence that this world is not your home, that Jesus will come back for his people and he's leaving them now and that feels scary and daunting. But his leaving them is putting the plan into action. And how has he done that? Well, three points this morning. So it's good that he goes. It's good that he goes because we can dwell with the Father. Why? The first one, he's the way to the Father. He's the way. I guess we've got questions as it begins, because it sounds like Jesus might be heading off to a big Airbnb that God owns, and he's going to go and make some beds and plump some pillows, and just make sure there's money in the, in the meter, and it's all in order before we arrive. I think probably in years ago, that's kind of how I understood one to four. So what is this house that he's talking about? And what is Jesus going to do there for us? The Father's house has already come up in John's Gospel, if you know John well. It's used back in the temple in chapter 2. Three years before, another Passover season. And let me read again, chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle 
sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And the temple, the temple was where God dwelt among his people. It was there they went to sacrifice, there they went to pray, there they went to worship, there they went to meet with God. The temple represented the place where God actually dwelt in heaven. Though. A shadow of a greater reality, a shadow of where God really is. And so Jesus is about to go to the reality, the Father's house, to where God the Father dwells in a sense. And yet what's he doing there? Well, he's getting it ready. He's preparing a means for his people to arrive. He's opening up the way by which we can get to be with God the Father. He's dying on the cross. He's paying for our sins. He's rising again. It's the journey that opens the means for us to dwell with God forever. And so now you think, ah, oh, he's not plumping pillows. Actually, he's making it possible for us to get there. Without that, we can't. Without Jesus going to the cross, dwelling with the Father would be an impossibility. But now it's a certainty. He's made it possible for us to get there. And more than that, he's going to come back and take us to be with him. One day he will return. One day, finally, he will take his people to be with the Father forever. So firstly, he is the way to the Father. Secondly, he's the truth about the Father. And look, he starts off in verse 1 by telling us to believe in God. Okay. I mean, they would expect that. They were a people who knew to trust to believe in their God. And yet he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, believe in God the Father. He says, believe in me too, which would practically be blasphemy, unless he were divine as well. And into our culture of all truth being truth, a culture where truth is slippery and a bit relative, and these jarring, exclusive claims of Jesus hit us in the face, almost like clanging cymbals. Maybe they clang in your ears. Maybe you've got questions. And yet Jesus says, I am the truth about the Father. A little while ago I came across the term, um, a, a Humpty Dumpty term. Anybody heard of a Humpty Dumpty term? It's from a little section in um, Lewis Carroll's Alice Through the Looking Glass, and it's where um, Humpty Dumpty is speaking. He says, when I use the word... Humpty Dumpty said in a rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, nothing more or less. The question is, says Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that is all. You see, we live in a culture where people seek to relativise truth. You have your truth and I have mine. You have your definition of a word, I have my definition of a word. Humpty Dumpty says, well, what's important is actually what trumps what. Is there such a thing as objective truth? And yet Jesus comes from outside the system. He is the one who defines truth for us. 
And so often people say, well, to me, you know, to me, God is like this. This is how I like to think of God. He's a, finish the sentence. I heard this recently. But of course, that doesn't quite work, does it? Because if Jesus, if God has revealed himself, we don't have the license or the right to shape him or to say, well, to me, God is like this because, but that's not what God is like. Because Jesus tells us what God is like. He is the truth of the Father. I've said this to you before, but if I were to share with you, you know, one of the best things about my wife, Zoe, is her beautiful green eyes, her wavy brown hair, the fact that she's six foot four, you would know something is wrong because she has none of those attributes. She doesn't have green eyes or wavy brown hair or quite such stature. I don't have the license or the right to, to redefine her because she's revealed herself and we know her. There are consequences for getting her wrong. Well, so with the Lord, there are consequences for getting him wrong. He has revealed himself to us, and we don't just get to make him up as we want. Jesus says he is the truth about the Father. Want to know what God the Father is like? Look at the Son. Go listen to him. It's a theme that will come again and again and again through this section, but... Next week, we will hear things like this. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The, the words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Want to know the truth about God? Truth in a world made by a God of truth, whose words and actions can always be trusted? Go to Jesus says Jesus. Listen to me, says Jesus. I will teach you. I will show you. And I am mindful that that will make us unpopular in our current culture. These kinds of ideas, these kinds of truths even, will stick us out on a limb somewhere. But at least according to these verses, truth about God is not relative. If you think it is, I'd love to chat to you afterwards over coffee. It's going to hit home harder next week. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet these words verge on irony. Because he's the truth about the Father. He's the life, sorry, he's... He's the way to the Father, he's the truth about the Father, he's the life from the Father, but in 24 hours, there will be a lifeless, broken body hanging on a cross. Thirdly, the life from the Father then. And when we say life in John's Gospel, it's not like he's air conditioning, which would be beautiful today, wouldn't it? Air conditioning that makes life a bit better, that just gives you a bit of a boost we're not talking about our own fulfillment. We're not talking about our little self-actualization project and the thing we would, things we would like to achieve in our life. We're, we're not talking about any of that. Life in John's Gospel is a different kind of life altogether. It's the life that we were made for, the life that we were created for, knowing the God of life whom we've walked out on. And because we've walked out on the God of life, we do look for life in all kinds of other places. You see it right through the scriptures. The people of God 
Israel with their idols in the wilderness, their hearts running all kinds of, after all kinds of other gods that promised them life and satisfaction and salvation. And they think it might work, so they try it, and it never does. <laughs> People of Israel, what are you doing? And then it's us. The little idols in our hearts, the things that think, we think will give us life and satisfaction and salvation. And, and we run after them and we, they captivate us. But they never give us the life that we thought. And our hearts constantly dream up idols to worship. One after another. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's the answer. And we're browsing on the internet or we're chasing after dreams. It's the job, it's the house, it's the spouse, it's the kids, it's the haircut, it's the outfit, it's our looks, it's our brains, our talents, our abilities, it's comfort, it's approval, it's power, it's security, it's control, it's... And our hearts get sucked in and they never work and they never last. And maybe on a Wednesday you find your life, your joy, your satisfaction because you are a professional table tennis player. That is what you do. That is why you get out of bed in the morning. And on Thursday, you fall off your bike and you break your arm and you will never play table tennis again. And life is taken away from you. The things you've looked for, you've sought for, you've longed for. Temporary and fragile and precarious. But the life that we were made for, the life in Christ, which is a little, which is so much bigger than all the little lives that, that point towards him, is permanent because Jesus can never be taken away because he's about to go to be with the Father. And when we look for life in the wrong places and the wrong things and we keep doing it and we keep doing it and we keep doing it, we miss out on the life that we can enjoy in him. And when we have him, and we know that we have him. We have enough for life. We can trust him even in our death. I've quoted this before, so forgive me if you've heard it. But um, it's one of my favorite accounts. And it seems to me, here is a guy who got it. Just frankly, he got it. He was an early church father called John Chrysostom. He was brought in before the Roman emperor. And the emperor threatens him with banishment if he remains a Christian. He says, you can't banish me for this world is my father's house. And so the emperor says, well, I will kill you then. I won't banish you, I will kill you. You can't kill me, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasures. You can't. My treasure is hidden in heaven. My heart is there. Then I will drive you from your friends until no one is left. You can't. But I have a friend in heaven from whom nothing can separate me. He finishes, I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Banishment, no. Death, no. Treasures, no. Friends, no. Because I have Christ, he says. And you see, at the end of the day, we have him. And if we have him, he will take us to be with the Father, and, and that can never be taken away from you. You're safe. Everything else can, but not him. It strikes me in preparing for this that we... Some of us, many of us, all of us, need to do a bit of thinking about the definition of life that we work from. 
to rethink that definition for ourselves. Or maybe even it's just to notice the default setting of our hearts is that we look for life in this or this or this, and those things are not the things. And it's so easy to get our definition of life not from the word in our hands, but the world all around us, and what everybody else is doing. And life becomes about me and my comfort and what I'm going to do in my life, rather than me and my God and what I'm going to do with him. I wonder if that's a conversation for home groups. What definition of life practically do we work from? Not the right answer that we know on paper, but actually the answer that we live out each day. And I recognize that it takes faith for us to believe this. It, it feels countercultural, it feels topsy turvy, it, it feels paradoxical. We've just said he's the way to the Father, he's the truth about the Father, he's the life from the Father. And yet, maybe you'll think, are you sure? Do you know how the story ends? Do you know how the chapters roll into each other? And so someone said this, I am the way is spoken by one whose way was the ignominious shame of a Roman cross, the death of despised and debased criminals. I am the truth spoken by one about to be condemned by lying witnesses, one who was generally not believed by his own people or his own family. I am the life uttered by one whose battered corpse would shortly rest in a dark tomb, sealed up by the authorities. But of course, it's only through his death and resurrection that the way is opened up for us to come to the Father's house. It's only through his death and resurrection that, that we learn the truth about the Father. And it's through his death and resurrection that we will gain the eternal life that we long for. So can I say, when you're fearful, when it's three o'clock and you can't sleep, when you're anxious, when you're struggling, when you're afraid, when you're tempted to look elsewhere. Firstly, look ahead. Look ahead to why Jesus left. Look ahead to the future that is to come. That this is not all there is. That one day he will return and take us to be with him. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This is not it. But as well as looking ahead, look to the one who shows you the Father. Look to the one who is the way to, who is the truth about, and the life from the Father. And rather than looking at the thing, the looming mountain, the stress, the anxiety, the whatever it is for you, look to him. Look to him. Look to a life that cannot be taken away from you. A life that is truly satisfying. And a life that goes on forever. We'll take bread and wine shortly. And as we take bread and wine, it will be more than just a remembering of Jesus. It will be a fresh participation in. It will be saying, yes, this is for me. This is where I find my life. This is what it's about. This is where my hope, my trust, my belief is. Not just a theory, not just an idea. But it's as if we, we, we take it into our bodies again and are strengthened to then go and live for him afresh. It's in him that we find life. Let me pray. Father in heaven, such 
huge truths just in these four verses. Truths that redefine our perception on reality, what we're doing here even, our understanding of who Jesus is, of what this is all about. And so, well, might we know that he is the only way to you. And in a world that relativizes truth, help us to hold fast, to cling to that reality. But we thank you that he is the truth about you. And so it's in Christ that we know what God is really like. And again, in a world that relativizes truth, might we hold fast and cling on to that reality. Thank you that it's through him and from him that we know true life with you, life as it was meant to be lived. And we're sorry when we look other places, when our hearts drift, when they get captivated, when we find things alluring, when when we go after them rather than you. We're sorry for being double-minded. And yet we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his death in our place. We thank you for his opening up a way to, to not just know you, but to be with you forever. We thank you that he shows us what you are like. We thank you that it's through him that we can have true life. And Lord, I pray for myself as I pray for us as a church that we might cling to that reality. And when it's three o'clock in the morning and we're anxious and we're struggling and we're finding all the what-ifs are overwhelming, help us particularly, particularly then, to know the power of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.